After two years of testosterone and a double mastectomy, she was just a tired, hurt, lonely little girl. Her words. When Heather Shreve became a Christian as a college student, she started a journey of processing the pain of her past, much of which went back to her parents. Her internalized sense of inadequacy evolved into self-loathing. Heather wrestled with what the Bible said about sexuality and acknowledged her own attraction to the same sex. And in your own ministry, you can likely identify that correlation between parental wounds um, and, and the processing of those confused with sexual desire expressed in same-sex attraction. And when she bravely shared this struggle to a group of Christians, she just needed someone to care, to hear, thank you for sharing that with us. You're not alone. Other Christians struggle with this too. You still belong here. Heather didn't get any of that. The underlying issues of her self-perception and sexual attractions went unaddressed and her mental health continued to decline when she came out as a lesbian. And again, after the high of testosterone shots wore off, and then again after her top surgery. She was, in her own words, trying to modify my body to deal with soul-level heartache. Within a short span of time, she had socially, hormonally, and surgically transitioned to living as a man. See, Heather didn't just like being, just dislike being a woman. Heather disliked being Heather. Months after her procedure, she realized that her pain was beyond the reach of any surgeon. Heather sensed the Holy Spirit say to her, why are you settling for your brokenness? Don't you know that I offer wholeness? She may have given up on liking herself, but God had not given up on loving her. And from that point, she began the process of detransitioning, of returning back to life according to her biological sex. And today, Heather is a witness, sharing her testimony of Jesus' power to restore and as a wake-up call to his people. It's such a joy to be with you today. Thank you, Dr. Strand, for this incredible invitation. And uh, thank you for Drs. Allison and Colgen for what you have presented already. We are living in a uncharted territory moment in the church. Actually, let me rephrase that. We're living in an uncharted territory moment at our experience of the church, and yet it is not actually uncharted territory for the church in the history of God's people. But we have to know what we're dealing with and what we're up against Heather's story is like so many others. Some 80% of LGBTQ community come from a Christian or religious background. They're in our youth groups. They're in your college Bible studies. They're in your children's summer camps. They're in our congregations, our Christian schools, our homeschool co-ops, and even our families. And they are pulled between a belief system that anchors sex and gender in their creator and the cultural riptide sweeping them into confusion and, in many cases, irreparable harm. If young women express disdain for their weight, their shape, their skin tone, we tell them not to change themselves, to accept themselves, that they're beautiful as they are, all in the name of body positivity. The message is don't feel shame, embrace yourself. But when those same young women express a similar disdain for their biological sex, society tells them the exact opposite. 
Rather than embracing and accepting themselves, they should pursue every medical and surgical alteration, all in the name of self-acceptance. Separate biological self from the gendered self, and the only determining factor for your gender identity is the psychological self. Gender becomes nothing more than a feeling. With males and females assuming that despite their complex biology, despite sex differences that affect far more than our reproductive systems alone, that they know what it feels like to be the opposite gender. And every perception is considered legitimate. Demigender is the idea that you are sort of half woman, but not really. Blank space gender, in which someone describes their sense of gender as nothing more than a blank space. And then others are expanding terms uh, to include things not limited to just humanity. In other words, they're saying that their sense of gender, their self-perception, also somehow ties into plants, animals, or other objects. So for instance, cat gender is another one. If you're familiar with uh, furries, you should be. Uh, Google at your own risk. Uh, but but <laughs> cat gender is the idea that someone's, uh, usually girlhood, is bound up in the identity of a cat. As one former trans-identified female described it, self-harm is the new self-care. The significance and goodness of our physical world, however, is one that the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, not only upholds, but gives as an answer to our gender ideology. Our faith teaches that the material world is good, that sex and gender are not incidental or accidental aspects of who we are. Just look at Genesis 1 and 2 and notice the Hebrew words contained there. In Genesis 1, we find that male is described in terms of sexual identity, as is female. So the male word used is zakar. The female word used is nekeba. It's describing their biological difference. However, skip over to Genesis 2, and we move from biology to gender, as it were. We move from the physical to the relational, and all of a sudden, male and female are now man and woman, ish, isha. The woman comes from the man. They are connected, yet different, related to each other, correlated to each other, yet not the same. In other words, we have the foundation for not only the difference between sex and gender, but the correlation for sex and gender right in our own creation narrative. It's all there. It shows how we both individually and interdependently image God. Christianity also gives us an understanding of our complex wholeness. We are not just one thing, the biological self, the psychological self, the emotional self. We are complex wholes, and these all work together in a way that, uh, as one of our speakers said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Gender is distinct, but it is not divisible. The same way that our sexuality is distinct, but not divisible to our identities. The way that God created our bodies to be different between male and female is extensive. In fact, science is in some ways just now catching up with some of the differences. 
They include neurological differences. One psychologist described uh, the male brain as wired for systems, the female brain wired for empathy. And these differences, by the way, are formed beginning in the first trimester of gestation. At the eighth week in utero, a baby girl continues the hormonal structure of, of the, the embryo, the developing embryo. Forgive me, Dr. Collagen. I know I'm not saying that exactly right. But the, the male baby um, has a surge of testosterone in the eighth week, and that surge of testosterone guides its development. In other words, this idea of nature versus nurture, it's not either or, it's both and. The body informs our gender identity. Um, Empathy-wired baby girls express themselves as girls within an hour after birth. Less than one day old, female newborns are more responsive to the cries of other babies. Within her first few days, she will prefer to look at people rather than objects. Baby boys, you can try to stare and make eye contact, and there's like, what, is that a plane? Is that a ball moving? God wired the male brain to be more attuned to systems and movement and motion and objects, and the baby girl's brain is wired for connection and empathy and eye contact. In fact, um, by just a few months old, a baby girl will have what's called mutual facial gazing increased by 400%. She's wired to observe feelings. In fact, this is kind of funny if you've ever had, if you're a girl dad, any girl dads in here, at 18 months, a girl can tell if someone is listening to her by interpreting the person's facial expression. You laugh because you know it's true. And as her brain develops, she becomes even more perceptive to emotions, a greater sensitivity to social cues and faces. That's just the neurological and emotional. The differences between even the muscular system are incredible and also uh, designed to help us fulfill our purpose as male and female. The female muscular system, for instance, contains um, about a third more what's called slow-twitch fibers than men's muscles, as well as a greater density of capillaries. So here's where that is important. This enables women to sustain force for an extended period of time, but not to have a significant burst of force. So in other words, she probably can't pull a car by a rope, but she can endure sustained contractions without quitting. This is all designed at the fiber level of her muscles. The female body is structured and organized around sustaining and gestating new life. These differences go far beyond what a surgeon can reach. Dr. Allison referred to common capacities and properties that are expressed in gender-specific or gender-informed ways, and, and that is one way that our biological differences guide or inform our gender expression. In other words, who we are in a gendered social sense is an expression of who we are in a sexual physical sense. We are complex wholes. We are, however, up against some ideologically combustible combinations. Now, think about these ideas a lot like the cleaning products in your house. You might have some bleach, some baking soda, some vinegar, some 
ammonia. Uh, I was known as kind of the uh, domestically challenged one in my family. And so when I would pick up cleaning products, my parents made sure I knew if you mix bleach and ammonia, bad things are going to happen. The trouble is these are common things, so common that we don't notice them, yet when they combine together, they create a toxic air, one that we breathe in and don't realize how affected we are by it. I'm drawing from uh, Carl Truman's book, Strange New World, which is a uh, kind of a distilled version of Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I encourage you to read both, uh, but Strange New World is especially great for people in your ministries who might be a little intimidated by the tome that is Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, a few of the ideas that are affecting us and creating combustible uh, combinations, postmodernism. I won't belabor these because I know that you're familiar with them, but it is the uh, idea from which we get your truth is your truth. Um, speak your truth. It, it's true because it works for you. Not only does postmodernism claim that objective truth doesn't exist, it claims that if you are making some type of authoritative statement, such as God created people, male or female, that that is both arrogant and bigoted because objective truth is beyond our reach. We can't grasp it. We can't attain it. We're too infected by our subjective cultural influences. So in other words, all religions are just opinions and products of culture, not reflective of some type of transcendent truth. And consequently, then, concepts of right and wrong are all relative. When a person, system, or worldview makes an objective absolute claim, a line has been crossed, and toleration has found its limit. There can be no universal moral principle with universal moral implications about human beings and how they should live, because that would imply a moral system to which others are accountable, a moral system that is objective, and that is the unforgivable sin. Expressive individualism, live your truth. If you grew up watching Disney movies like I did, you were drinking this in before you could pronounce it. Expressive individualism says that the inner you is the real you, the authentic you. And the key to a fulfilled and happy life is to unlock that real you and allow it to flourish in all of its fullness. Authenticity is the greatest virtue. Inauthenticity is the greatest sin. You look to your feelings to shape and guide your actions. Your outer world should align with your inner world. It, your outer world should conform to your true self, which is who you feel yourself to be. This also affects how we view responsibilities, and especially how we interpret claims from tradition, religion, or any other type of objective uh, science field. Someone pursuing her authentic self is fulfilling her purpose following her heart. The source of truth becomes the self. And we can draw a straight line from expressive individualism to modern gender theories. Truman says this, psychology trumps biology. The language is that of inner feelings, individual experience, and personal sense. A person's own feelings are given such authority that it's hard to see how any person might challenge an individual's view of their own identity without being immediately liable to accusations of oppression 
or worse. Distrust of society. This is the idea of um, escaping social expectations. Society forces you to live in an inauthentic way, and that is your, the greatest harm to yourself that you could experience. And so you have to rid yourself of societal expectations. This comes from the father of romanticism, um, and uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau continues to be an influence in the West. He believed people were free, independent, and good, but it's just society that is the problem. So in other words, if you have society that is the real problem, what should society's role then be um, but to get out of the way of the individual and follow the individual's emotional claims of who they express themselves to be. It has a grain of truth, of course. We're all affected by our culture, our environment, but it misdiagnoses the problem of the human condition as well as the source. We are not naturally good, as 1 John 1.8 tells us, and our hearts will not save us from a corrupt society. Our hearts contribute to a corrupt society. And consequently, the more social expectations, according to this view, the more social expectations someone throws off and defies, the more courageous they really are. This is why we see someone coming out as trans as celebrated. But the cisgendered teenage girl, especially if she fits other demographics that are the majority, well, there's not anything really special about her. She's just conforming to the majority culture. Soji equals self. This says that your sexual identity is your true identity. And this is very shaped by the ideas of Sigmund Freud. Sex is not just an activity, it is who you are. This is also why uh, from its earliest days, the Christian worldview stood out from its surrounding culture related to sexual ethics. The last ingredient, the politicization of sex, says that your true self should be expressed and that society should protect that self-expression. And with that comes the implication that the government should protect your self-sexual identity. It becomes a political issue. Once sex becomes who you are, it also is politicized because all identities end up becoming political. Um, This also comes from the ideas of Wilhelm Reich, who talked about sexual identity uh, being equally valid and requiring recognition, not just acceptance or toleration, but recognition. And Reich believed that moral codes Uh, were designed to create compliant children to obey their patriarchal uh, mothers, or excuse me, patriarchal fathers in this society. And so the solution to oppressive family structures was an education program that encouraged a child's sexual exploration and expression. In other words, the solution to liberating children from sexual constraints was to liberate them from the moral codes imposed upon them by parents. The family was uh, a what he called the single most important union unit of ideological control. And the intervention was res- the responsibility of the state. 
to protect the child's sexual and political freedom, the government needed to be willing to coerce and even punish families that disagreed with the state's sex education program. We are seeing that happen today. All sex and gender identities are considered legitimate, worthy of protection, and the lack of recognition is considered or conflated with discrimination. Equality isn't just the right to be treated with respect, but the right to compel others to adapt or agree, whether in speech or public policy. Let's talk about some of the contagions and influencers. The first is rapid onset gender dysphoria. You may be familiar with the research of physician scientist Lisa Littman. Now, Lisa Littman is not uh, religious. She's not conservative, but she was derided by trans uh, activists for the results of her research. Lisa Littman wanted to know why all of a sudden, in the last few years, teenage girls were expressing transgender identity and gender dysphoria when previously they had no expression of that during their childhood. The script had essentially been flipped. It used to be a very small segment of natal males would, around maybe five to seven, express that they felt more like they were uh, a girl. And this was a very small segment. It was something like a fraction of 1%. Now, all of a sudden, you have not only the gender disparity flip, but the rate of occurrences. And not only is it the rate of occurrences, but it's a little bit like a snowball creating an avalanche, where all of a sudden it seems more and more and more. And Littman wanted to understand why is this social phenomenon happening? So she surveyed over 200 parents whose young adult or adolescent children uh, had no expression of gender incongruence, and then came out as trans in middle or high school. And most of them agreed that their child's announcement just came out of nowhere. And within weeks, these teen girls went from expressing no gender dysphoria to saying they were transgender and they wanted to medically transition immediately. The average age of the children was 16, and more than 80% of them were natal females, and she called it rapid onset gender dysphoria. Here were the factors she discovered. First, it was the influence of the girl's friend group. Second, the tendency to manifest gender dysphoria as a coping mechanism. And third, increased social media consumption. Littman compared rapid onset gender dysphoria to the spread of anorexia, in both cases, girls internalize symptoms and behaviors. They chronically talk about their weight, their body image, their weight loss techniques. They even coach one another on how to deceive parents and deceive physicians. They valorize the committed anorexic the way the transgender community valorizes the committed trans student. Social media consumption played a huge role. Websites like YouTube, Reddit, TikTok, Tumblr, they were like rabbit holes of suggestion and circular reasoning. Vague feelings so common to adolescent life were said to confirm lifelong, unrealized gender nonconformity. And then finally, the coup de grace of online advice. If you're asking whether you're trans, you probably are. It took me all of 15 seconds to stumble upon the gender Bible 
on Reddit. And it was a website devoted to navigating gender dysphoria, saying that if you get energy from the idea of yourself as the opposite gender, well, that probably means something about who you really are. Typical teen angst, even just having unpleasant emotions that come with a bad day, it translated to closeted trans identity. This also uh, dovetails into what Littman found on the vulnerability of how suggestible teen girls especially are. She called it a social contagion, and a social contagion is the spread of certain behaviors or attitudes like a virus. And people who are vulnerable to social contagions have heightened suggestibility, meaning they're likely to, to accept the suggested actions of other people and take them on as, them, as their own. They are unduly influenced by others. And this pure contagion theory may explain why that gender ratio flipped so drastically. Girls are wired for connection, identification, and harmony in their relationships. And among the parents Littman surveyed, over one-third reported that a majority of the members in their child's friend group identified as transgender. One 14-year-old girl and her three friends were close to a very popular coach, and this coach announced a trans identity. Within a year, all four teens did the same. Littman also found a connection between rapid-onset gender dysphoria and other mental health issues. Many of them had past trauma, self-harming behaviors, difficulty coping. Many of them had been diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder. Over two-thirds had social anxiety. Nearly half had experienced a traumatic event shortly before their announcement. A parent's divorced, uh, death in the family, rape, harassment, an abusive uh, romantic relationship, a breakup, bullying, changing schools, serious illness, some type of emotionally traumatic experience, and, and their trans identity became a coping mechanism. They got positive attention from it. It became a way to redirect. I've lost count of how many girls all of a sudden became transgender as a result of psychological survival from sexual abuse. One girl uh, began, began puberty a, a little earlier than her peers, and she was teased for her developing breasts. She went online and found out that being uncomfortable with your breasts means you're transgender. Psychologists have a name for this. It's called psychic epidemics. Sounds kind of scary, but here's, here's what it means. It means that there are manifested symptoms that people latch onto as a way to get help for their own issues. So the distress is real, the psychological need is real, but they see someone getting help and positive attention because they have certain symptoms and they decide to kind of co-opt those and take them on as their own. And all of a sudden, these symptoms catch on, and they become what one doctor calls the new social script. By the way, suicide among trans-identified people, some psychologists are warning that this is also becoming the new social script. If you tell teen girls that if they don't get hormones or a breast binder or surgery, that they're going to become suicidal, and then their parents object to those treatments, 
it's like you are creating, uh, with, through the power of suggestion, a suicidal teenager. To be clear, the psychological distress is real. The anguish is genuine. Even psychologists who think this gender dysphoria craze is a social contagion or psychic epidemic acknowledge that the mental suffering is real. And the last thing we need to do with all this information is act like the underlying issues are not uh, things that we should be taking care of. We absolutely should. But gender dysphoria is not uh, the core issue for most. Rather, it is an expression of another issue. Most girls, especially females identifying as trans, it is a way to focus their unhappiness and cope with their problems. They're not acting, they're redirecting. Social media saviors, oh my goodness, the correlation between social media and overnight trans identity is striking. Um, children can find scripts, word-for-word, copy-paste speeches to tell their parents. They can also find um, things that they should tell doctors to make sure that they walk out with puberty blockers or cross-sex hormone prescriptions. Um, just look at, just search for top surgery on TikTok if you're not afraid of China. And um, uh, currently, it's, it's the most popular social media platform among teens. If you go search top surgery, you will find so many pro-trans videos with millions and millions of views. There are so many young women who went down the transgender rabbit hole, detransitioned, and can link this struggle back to social media use. One girl, um, a pastor's wife told me about, she was raised in the church, her parents are both doctors, and they allowed her to have the cell phone unrestricted and within a few months, she said that she was transgender and an atheist. There's a reason that Silicon Valley, Valley billionaires forbid or highly restrict screen time for their own kids. Neurologist Frances Jensen has studied adolescent brain development, and she uh, found the correlation between vulnerability and suggestibility with social media and the age at which that brain is developing. So adolescents, they're moody, impulsive. They can't yet make responsible decisions, especially ones that involve risk. They get this wealth of new stimuli through social media, and before their brain is fully formed, they do not yet understand watching this video might affect me in a way that is not yet responsible or I can't handle. The cure for all of this rapid onset gender dysphoria is much worse than the disease. For instance, affirmative therapy is now the prevailing standard of care. Affirmative therapy, or gender-affirming care, uh, says that the therapist not only agrees with how the patient feels, but agrees with the patient's self-perception. Not just you feel like a girl trapped in a boy's body, but you actually are a girl trapped in a boy's body. They follow the patient's lead. It goes beyond compassion and sensitivity, which we would want for every uh, counselor to give, and instead, it allows the patient to set the terms for their diagnosis and treatment. And this is affirmed and sponsored by organizations like the American Psychological Association and the American Academy 
of pediatrics. By the way, there's an article, uh, it's a website called Healthy Children, sponsored by the American uh, Academy of Pediatrics, that says children have a stable sense of gender identity by four years old. No long-term studies can claim this. In fact, the data demonstrates that the very stage of human development that is most clarifying for gender identity is what gender-affirming care is preventing, puberty. Most gender dysphoric children grow out of that gender uh, incongruence by the time they reach puberty. Not a statistical gamble either, 80%. That's why up until a few years ago, the general approach was called watchful waiting. Don't try to necessarily force the child, but allow nature to take its course, and it did at 80%. Now, however, if you were to suggest watchful waiting, you are bigoted and potentially an unsafe person for your child. It is happening. It has happened in Canada. I think we're starting to see some of it now where the parental rights are being challenged if a parent dissents to gender-affirming care. We just had a case like that in Texas. The father has lost his parental rights his mother, uh, the child's mother, has taken the child to California where the son is transitioning to life as a girl. This method of watchful waiting was incredibly effective, but now, now, puberty blockers are being prescribed earlier and earlier. In other words, the one natural stage of life that is healthy and good and not a disease that needs to be pathologized the one stage of life that is clarifying for a child is being suppressed, treated, and regarded like a disease to escape. Healthy, normal biological development and function is not allowed to uh, continue to develop. And so some girls uh, who go to a gender therapist maybe feeling uncomfortable with their changing bodies or another one feeling uncomfortable with the sexual attention they recognize they get from older men. They express that and in our gender hypercritical world are said, well, perhaps you must be transgender. Any approach other than affirmative care is condemned as conversion therapy and conversion therapy um, it used to be regarded as like a cure for someone's same-sex attractions, something that many Orthodox Christians would not ascribe to today. Rather, you can be a same-sex attracted Christian who lives chastely and God-honoring in your life in celibacy. However, now conversion therapy is being conflated with anything other than unqualified assent. I'll move on because I know we're... How are we doing? Oh, let me do. Stifled data. You got to know about this. Um, the, the data that is challenging these views, um, it, is, it is typically regarded as harmful. It is uh, considered bigoted itself and challenged. But you need to know that there are studies demonstrating that post-gender affirming care leaves the patient worse than pre-gender affirming care. And I'm using that, firm, that term, gender affirming, as it is culturally. Uh, a 2011 study implied poor psychological outcomes for those who transitioned. 
A 2014 study found that post-operative transsexuals um, were 19 times more likely to commit suicide. What we don't know is whether the gender transition treatments and surgeries caused the increase in suicides or correlated to other factors contributing to it. But we do know that the effects of affirmative therapy are not giving the relief that the medical community is claiming. We'll move on. Thanks. Questions and quandaries. Let's consider social spaces. You ask a gender activist about trans rights and the admittance of trans women in female social spaces, and it almost becomes the representative issue in our day. Um, and with good reason, biological males in women's spheres are generating some of the greatest shock. There was a case not too long ago where a woman took her daughter to some type of health spa, and there was a man uh, cross-dressing as a female, identified as a woman, and was permitted to go into this woman's locker room. He exposed himself to the teenage girl, and the establishment sided with the biological male. We've lost our minds. A female should be free, according to uh, some critical of this idea, a female should be free to withhold her consent to share intimate space with biological males. This is um, affecting women's equality and privacy. And it's not just high school female athletes getting elbowed out of scholarship opportunities. It is uh, female uh, rape care centers that are being forced to share space with biological males who are presenting themselves as females. So in other words, in our first full circle of gender equality since the 1960s, what gender equality has managed to achieve is a world in which a woman is yet again silenced and told that her feelings and autonomy do not matter because of a biological male claiming the right to be in that social space. Gender equality, behold thy triumph. And this is what happens when we try to achieve social equality by means of just redistributing power. That's what's happened, as opposed to understanding gender equality through the lens of Genesis and the foundation that we are created in God's image. This is also happening, especially in the UK, women's prisons. Uh, be prepared for that to occur in our world as well. The poison of pornography, it is impossible to discuss gender ideology and trans culture without pornography. Let me go through this very quickly. First, um, a lot of girls who call themselves trans, they have viewed violent pornographic material at a young age, and they are terrified. They are terrified about having sex with a man. And so sexually active girls between 14 and 17 years old, about 13% of them have reported being choked during sexual activity. This is a result of the poison of pornography. One therapist uh, works with a lot of trans adolescents and says that her patients are pretty freaked out by porn. And porn played a big role in their new identity. For the sake of time, I won't go through all of this, but you will want to familiarize yourself with a term called autogynephilia. Autogynephilia is translated love of oneself as a woman. If you remember that 2015 film, The Danish Girl, that was based on a true story. And uh, there is a genre of porn 
that a teenager can stumble upon, and it essentially um, portrays men uh, in a feminized form, and it tells the viewers that they have participated in a sexually submissive action just by viewing this pornographic material. It is being used, it is dark and demonic, it is being used to plant the suggestion that men who watch this are actually women. It is very different from the child who has transgender uh, identity or confusion. This is why it's so very important, and if you start to talk about this, be prepared, because you're going to be uh, said that you are being uh, horribly bigoted and, and calling trans people perverts. The reality is, among males, there are a few who are genuine, genuinely gender confused, and there are probably a lot more who are addicted to pornography and have stumbled upon something that is causing that confusion. Third, trans-identifying teens are extraordinarily vulnerable to the pornography industry and being victimized by it. I can't imagine the struggle of having a gender-confused child, but ostracizing and kicking them out of the community of faith is only going to make them more vulnerable to being embraced by the LGBTQ community. Keep in mind, they're a community. And oftentimes, sadly, they outdo the church in hospitality. Transgender adolescents uh, can be isolated from spiritual and emotional support and become quickly exploited. Transgender porn is one of the most viewed categories. And in the last three years, uh, Pornhub reports that it's the fifth highest search term. The education system is something you need to know about. The education system uh, in public schools, depending on your city and state, is really becoming an indoctrination system for gender ideology. And I almost hate saying it like that because it sounds like I'm some like right-wing news person. It truly is happening. So you need to know what is happening in the public schools in your area. One preschool teacher celebrated how their three- to five-year-old children could reiterate gender theories. Three to five years old, uh, she said, today at the lunch table, the topic of gender and genitals came up. And one of our students looked up and said, well, I'm a girl today, but I know my teacher isn't. They're non-binary. Three to five. Elementary school children are taught things like the gingerbread person. I'll let you look that up. And it is a kind of a, a separation of gender identity, expression, and biology. And they are taught this at a young age. In California, gender identity start, uh, instruction starts in kindergarten. Um, parents can opt out of sexual health lessons that discuss sexual organs and their functions, but parents may not remove their children from lessons on gender identity. As of July 2020, uh, public schools in several states were um, introducing curriculum to three-year-olds on the meanings of gay, lesbian, or transgender. You will want to know about the book, I Am Jazz, the children's book, I Am Jazz, and how it is read to very young children. You will also want to know about an organization called Pride Less Prejudice. Pride Less Prejudice is a, a publishing company that produces pro-LGBTQ books for children and sends these book bundles for free to elementary school teachers. Things like uh, helping understand gender nonconformity and accept it, 
You know, worm loves worm. Which one's going to wear the dress? Which one's going to wear the tux? It doesn't matter. They love each other. Uh, these are geared for pre-K to third grade and then first through fifth grade. Um, uh, another re thing related that you will need to know, um, there's a curriculum from Rights, Respect, Responsibilities. That's the organization. They introduce children to gender fluidity at six and seven years old. It is a K-12 program, um, and it has been adapted and implemented in several states. It is worth looking at what the public education program for gender education and sex education is, is teaching in your community. And what do we do with that? I think we should see a complete revolution of Christians in local and state level public service. Why not the people in your church on school boards and city councils and state legislatures? Teachers are some of the most selfless people. I'm a public high school graduate. I'm not, uh, please don't hear me being disparaging towards uh, teachers. But you should also know that teachers' unions are no friend to uh, biblical uh, concepts of male and female. The sexualization of children, um, pedophilia is becoming increasingly normalized. So as sex identities are considered valid and uh, things that the state should protect, pedophilia is beginning to become uh, more and more in the news and pedophiles, first of all, they don't like that name. They want to be called minor attracted persons. See, change the, change the language, change the perception. And they are demanding to be given equal status and recognition. There's that uh, concept of Reich again. They want to have equal status and recognition as a sexual identity. They believe they're being treated unfairly in society and they want equality. You've probably also seen, um, quote unquote, family-friendly drag queen shows, drag queen story hour. These types of things, you go on social media and they accuse Christians or conservatives of just being uh, full of, of hype and uh, making so much more out of this than there is. I'll tell you, in Dallas, there was a, a drag queen performance in which children were present and two members of our city council were there supporting it. I'd like to know why. What's happening in your city? Finally, uh, caring for detransitioners, we must become ready for the growing presence of detransitioners, not just those who are transgender or struggling with gender identity, but people who for some, at some point, transitioned. Maybe it was just social with their clothes or their haircut or their name. Maybe it was hormonal or maybe it was surgical. And I am amazed. I shouldn't be because the Holy Spirit still works, but I'm amazed at hearing the stories of people who come to Christ. And as a result of their conversion, the Holy Spirit does his convicting work and persuades them that they need to be living in accordance with the body that he created them to have. I, it will be beyond me to understand how we help people wrestle through that. But we want not only to help people live in harmony with their created and bestowed gender, but we also don't want to create a false barrier between them and the gospel as though detransition and then come to Christ. No, there's a world of difference between someone overwhelmed by the idea of detransitioning, but having a willing heart 
and another person who insists on living in a transgender lifestyle and saying that harmonizes with their Christian identity. And by the way, there is no shortage of churches and so-called theologians and pastors who are affirming that idea. It will take patience. It will take compassion. Um, it will take uh, us walking with people on the long road. But we must be prepared. There's a man in Canada uh, who transitioned his gender, regrets it, has done everything he can to find peace, to find wholeness. And he is living in the effects of how not only have those surgeries not delivered on their promises, but now he's even worse off. And he is applying for medically assisted suicide. He believes his only hope of relief now is death. He just wants to die. Can we offer hope to him? We're, gonna, we're going to have them in our communities. Let me close with this. We may not have been here before, but the people of God have. This is nothing new. Um, in fact, it goes back millennia. There's a, a little verse in Deuteronomy 22 that addresses God's people not uh, cross-dressing. I think we can infer from that that one of the ways God's people were holy and separate from their pagan cultures around them was living in a way that comported with their biology. 1 Corinthians 11, notoriously difficult passage to interpret, but there is at least a connection between our discipleship and living in a way that is in harmony with our bestowed gender. There was a Roman emperor named Elagabalus, and he uh, reportedly was going to pay a fortune to anyone who could surgically change him into a woman. And for, uh, as we might say in our terms, he, he wanted to go by female pronouns. There's nothing new under the sun. In Jesus' time, being sick or disabled came with shame. You were forbidden from going to the temple. You may not have been able to marry or have a family. You were marginalized and cut off from community. And Jesus dropped everything when he met people with these kinds of needs. He broke religious traditions. He drew the ire of the socially elite because being healed wasn't just recovery from a condition. It was res restoration to a community. And those whom Jesus restored didn't stay marginalized. They were brought from isolation to connection, from alienation to acceptance. The affliction of gender confusion may not be outwardly visible, but those who suffer from it are every bit as alienated from themselves and from others. And were Jesus walking among us today, I can't help but wonder how he would respond to girls like Heather, lonely little girls who feel like they don't fit. He would be, as he has always been, infinitely kind and tender, patient and understanding, deeply moved by their pain, and loving enough to tell them the truth in a spirit of gentleness and grace. We are his representatives, his ambassadors, his messengers entrusted with good news. They do not have to settle for their brokenness. He offers wholeness. And he gave his own body to recover and restore those who feel disconnected from their own bodies. And even more than that, he brings us into the body of Christ.